This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me in studio, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I this week are continuing with the series Desiring the Kingdom. This is the third week of the series, so it will be First Kings chapter 3. Um, and we got through, Sam, last week, we got through the Godfather chapter. Solomon bumped off all of David's enemies. So this week we come to First Kings chapter 3, which is really the beginning of Solomon's reign. And before we kind of dive into the text, Sam, I wanted to ask you a, a question, and this is kind of goes to what we were talking about just before we turned the mics on, which is, you know, I feel like everybody kind of knows David as being you know, David and Bathsheba. We know that David was a great king, but David fell. I think, you know, anybody that's been around the church, and I'm assuming that most of our listeners are are people that go to church and have kind of heard some of these stories. So they're not surprised when we say that David had good things and bad things. But Mm -hmm. Solomon is kind of a golden child in some some respect. You know, we Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Solomon, so wealthy. Solomon mm-hmm. wrote all these books in the old, you know, Solomon, the guy that wrote Proverbs. It isn't Proverbs amazingly wise. And all of those things are true, and yet there's a duality to Solomon, and it mm-hmm. really starts to kind of show up here in chapter 3. And so how do you how do you feel about that? What do you if somebody says to you, "Hey Sam, you know, what kind of a king was Solomon? What kind of a guy was Solomon? How would you describe Solomon?" Yeah, like everybody, he's a he's a multidimensional character, and so one of the things that the Bible is when it lays Solomon out at the beginning of his life, as as we'll get into today and again next week, it seems like everything is wonderful about him. Yeah, like it it just it, does. it gives us all these wonderful things that he does and wisdom that's coming from him. And then when you get to the to the latter part of Solomon's life, the last two chapters devoted to Solomon, you go, wait, well, what? Where did this come from? <laughs> you know, he just. <laughs> He absolutely falls apart, and it seems like it's overnight, but one of the things that First Kings does, and particularly next week when we're in chapter 4, uh, you'll start to see us, is the Bible is still you know, talking about Solomon, and you can read right through the ways that it's talking about Solomon and think everything is good, but it's hiding these subtle clues in the text that show you that Solomon is going down a road that's ultimately going to cause him to crash. Mm. And so all of Scripture, you know, it, it's it's like, you know, we want to make all of these characters one-dimensional, and the Bible will not allow us to do that. There is one figure yes. <laughs> in all of history that is one-dimensionally righteous and wonderful, and that's Jesus. Yeah. And so every other character is multidimensional. Now, humans, if if somebody, you know, we look at Solomon when he has his big crash, and we say, okay, so wait a minute, I don't understand. Was was he good or was he bad? And that's not the right answer. It's like, you know, if you have a failing, we don't judge your, you entirely based on that one failing. There's, right. there's, there's things that you do that are wonderful. There's things that you do that are really disappointing, and you can't define a person's entire life by one moment. And so Solomon's got this complexity going on from the beginning where he's battling, you know, selfish instincts and self-protectiveness and some of those things that all of us struggle with. And over here, you know, this where he very sincerely wants to honor the Lord, you know. And so our church is filled with people like that, including the person whose voice you're hearing right now, (laughs) you know. Yeah, I sincerely want to honor the Lord, but if you could – you know, examine my heart as the Lord could right now. You know, there's probably plenty of people who'd want to spit in my face for the yeah. amount of pride or arrogance or whatever that's in me. You know, we're we are not one-dimensional righteous beings. And I do think that that's especially true for Christians because if you're talking about somebody that's not a, a believer, they're not a follower of Christ. I feel as though there's a kind of a more like that's more of a constant thing. So, is this is this going to be a good person or is this going to be a bad person? There's not that sort of two natures thing. But with Christians, I do feel like you know 
we all have this, you know, we have this ability essentially to sort of transcend our humanness mm-hmm. and do what and do good things for God. And those good things are great and amazing things. And they sort of they sort of transcend our humanness. And if we didn't have that, well, we just kind of be in the mire with, you know, it's like there really wouldn't mm-hmm. be much hope for us. You know, it's like those good moments that we have. We have because of the Spirit of God that's in us, because of God, because we answer his call and, and, and as I said, walk in his ways and do what he's called us to do. Mm-hmm. And I think Solomon's a great example of that. When Solomon was doing what God called him to do, Solomon was fabulously successful at it. Mm-hmm. And yet his humanity was always right there. And and he he only transcended his humanity sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. And so the, so the wisdom that he gets in the, in the Hebrew word, Pastor Tom talked about this on Sunday, that Hebrew word for wisdom is it's literally kind of skill. It's, you know, Wayne Gretzky used to – famous line where he says, you know, uh, wisdom in hockey is I don't go where the puck is. I go where the puck is going to be. And so there's like Solomon has a wisdom to be able to anticipate how humanity works, how to get ahead of it, how to reign and govern to where he could keep his kingdom together and prosper and all those things. But you can use that sort of skill set, that sort of wisdom to really honor the Lord and to build out a kingdom that's righteous and just and charitable and merciful and all the wonderful traits that you want of a kingdom. But that same skill, that same skill in governing and wisdom could also be used to say, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Maybe some of this gold should come my way, and maybe, maybe I should enjoy this. And that's, that's going to be the tension that you find in Solomon. And ultimately, he gets a little bit too comfortable using his power to serve himself, which is the story of humanity. Right. Um, <laughs> and it ends yeah. poorly. Yeah. It does. So uh, we're at First Kings chapter 3. Let's look at the first couple of verses here. It reads, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. It says the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So right here at the start of chapter 3, we have what is, you know, it's like a precursor of things to come. Solomon didn't mm-hmm. make wise choices when it came to who he married. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's making a marriage alliance with Pharaoh. He takes Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the problem with that was what? She wasn't a believer. So so David also had wives that he brought to himself that were the daughters of foreign kings. But the understanding was that when they came to David, he brought them in, and they became part of the covenant community worshiping these gods. Now, it doesn't tell us in chapter 3 how Solomon treats you know, his wives, which you know, we get into the whole conversation of polygamy, which the Bible does not endorse, by the way. Right. Um, this will ultimately bring ruin. But Solomon does not bring them into his faith. Later on, in several chapters from now, we'll find out that he begins building shrines to these false gods of all these foreign wives. And so Solomon is not leading a covenant home. He's marrying Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he's allowing her to keep her beliefs. And so he's got a fractured home, um, which is going to eventually pull his heart away from the Lord. Um, And that's going to lead to his downfall. And so this is already out of the gates, you know, it's not abnormal. David David had done this before him, but what's different about Solomon is he is going to to use marriage as almost purely a political tool. Yeah. Um, and he's going to allow – it's like, ah, it's no big deal. So they're worshiping pagan gods. So the king's wives are chasing after all these pagan gods, some of them really reprehensible worship practices. It's okay. Yeah. No, that's not okay. And between wives and concubines, isn't it assumed that or believe that Solomon had like a thousand yeah. wives well, and concubines? It, it tells us that. Yeah, seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. I think is what it is, which is insane. <laughs> okay, let's just talk about the rotation for date night. There, I'm just yeah. saying he's not going to see them very often. <laughs> yeah, you get you get a date like once every three years or yes. something. It seems like if you're lucky. Yeah, and of course, some of those marriages are. Absolutely, purely political. There's no, there's nothing there at all. So, I mean, in terms of intimate relationships that he has, I'm guessing it's it's a way, 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 way more narrow field of wives. But still, more than one. 
and for sure. And and what and that was a, a problem for him. You know, I, I think we've talked about this too in the past that uh, that marrying more than one woman at that time in ancient Israel was something of a social security type of thing. It's like mm-hmm. you were even told if you're if a family member dies you should marry their wife, not because you need another wife, but because that then puts her in your household where you provide for her. So mm-hmm. it was something in some cases where it was a benevolent thing to to marry multiple women. You were providing for people who otherwise wouldn't have anything. Correct. Because yeah. if you were a woman without the covering of a man in virtually every ancient culture back then, sure. you, had, you had no industry, really. There was yeah. very few courses you could take to gain money you couldn't own property in a lot of instances and so you were left without option and so righteous men would take these vulnerable women under their wing Um, and solomon's also using it obviously for political advantages to make peaceful treaties with these foreign countries right but i just i mean i've had people ask me you know Mark, why did God let people marry more than one woman? And I said, it, sometimes, honestly, sometimes it was a righteous thing. It really was God's provision for these women was, you mm-hmm. know, take this woman into your house and marry her and make her take care of her. But it wasn't the same kind of intimate relationship they had with their first wife or something mm-hmm. like that. And that was true also. I mean, I, I feel <laughs> nervous saying it in light of, you know, modern sensibilities. But that was also the same same truth for ancient slavery. A lot of ancient cultures, you know, treated uh, slavery like we we can only think of slavery in terms of the American context, which is horrendous. But in the ancient world, that too was seen. You know, it's not like there were public grocery stores. There were people who didn't have land to farm, who right. couldn't eke out an existence. And so, how in the world could you possibly survive? Well, you were brought into the home of somebody who did have those resources, and you became a servant. But it was for your survival because if they said, no, 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 you're free. Go out and do your own thing. You would have starved to death. Right. Well, and then we there there was this class of servant where, no, it maybe wasn't perfectly voluntary, but you were being taken care of. And there was even a thing that that um, where they would be offered their freedom mm-hmm. and could choose to stay. Right. I mean, yeah, there was a set time period, right? We, we, which became indentured servitude later on is the term we used for it. But it was accepted that mm-hmm. a certain percentage of them would choose to stay. And then there was this I'm, – I'm a little – I'm trying to remember what the custom was. Wasn't that where they would put their ear against the door and like mark the ear or something like that? There was something where yeah. they did like a physical mark that said, I'm mm-hmm. voluntarily remaining this man's servant. Yep. All the, what you're saying is vaguely familiar, but I can't remember the specifics of it. So I'll I'll find that maybe for the show notes. But <laughs> there is something where there was this process they would go through where they would mark themselves, and so that you would understand that they were yes they were this man's slave. Well, let's be clear they didn't they it wasn't like yes or no and I can quit and I can go, but it was a choice by me. I mm-hmm. I have remained here because he treats me well. And there was a whole lot in the Bible about masters treat your slaves well. Don't you know that kind of thing. The the history of American slavery is com- is a completely different thing from a lot of the slavery we talk about in the Bible. I don't mean to justify slavery by saying that, but if you can't talk about what the truth is, what is, you know, this is what it is. It was different. So we just have to be willing to understand that. So yeah, it's Exodus 21. It says, the, a slave shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. But if he says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. So if you have pierced ears, you're a slave. Correct. There you go. But that, again, that was his choice to stay with a good master who treated him well. and that's mm-hmm. And I think that that's obviously different from the history of American slavery. Um, So uh, from that happy note, (laughs) back to verse two says the people were sacrificing at high places. What is, what's that talking about? Sacrificing at high places. So all throughout history, you worship is always done on high places on top of Hills. I mean, every culture all throughout time has done this. And so when you have uh, prior to the temple being built, um, they would they would worship on high places. Now this is this could be pagan, and this could be to Yahweh. So depending on where you are and and what you're doing, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. But once the temple is constructed, from this point forward, when the temple goes up, that's the only high place where you worship. Prior to that, 
it was considered okay, um, okay. broadly, that you could worship Yahweh on the high places. But after this, there's no high places that are acceptable. And all through the book of Kings, you'll find that the righteous kings come and they begin to tear down the the structures on the high places um, to get rid of idolatry in the land. After after Solomon, this will not be acceptable anymore. That's interesting. I, is, do you think that they constructed these temples and altars on high at high, on high places because they wanted to get closer to their gods? Is that mm-hmm. maybe the feeling for it? Yeah, you, that's true anywhere around the world. I mean, the reason why and and flat lands landscapes, you know, they build pyramids or ziggurats or these temples that look like mountains, is there is something seared into the minds of men that says God dwells with man uniquely on mountains. That goes all the way back to Eden, by the way, which is a mountain that gives headwaters and rivers that go to the to the ends of the earth is the idea. God dwells on a mountain. At Sinai, God comes and meets Moses on a mountain. You know, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's always a mountain in heaven. You know, God comes down to on a mountain. Um, and so there's this understanding. And for the Greeks, it was Mount Olympus. I mean, you can go down the line. There's something special you know, that the high places make you closer to heaven. So there's a sense that, you know, I'm getting closer to God. Mm. And so all cultures seem to worship on mountains. Mm. So verse 3 tells us that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used to offer a uh, thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Um, so what was special about Gibeon? Um, Gibeon, I believe, is the last place where the tabernacle had been moved. So in the, okay. in the at the end of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, there's a whole lot of switching around that happens. <laughs> you know, for the longest time, the tabernacle was at Shiloh, okay. and it stayed there for centuries. And then if you remember Eli, the high priest, um, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have this great idea that they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to take it out into battle as a good luck charm and it gets stolen and it has its own little adventure defeating the Philistines all on its own. And and First uh, Samuel, the early chapters of First Samuel. But then after that, it's taken to a couple of cities, uh, Kiriath-Jerim, I think, is one of them. But anyway, it moves, and so the tabernacle is no longer in Shiloh, and at the time that Solomon comes along, the tabernacle is at Gibeon, but David had moved the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle to Jerusalem, and so it, that's that's the idea. It's, okay. it's kind of a, the Ark of the Covenant is awaiting the construction of the temple, and the tabernacle is basically gutted without the Ark of the Covenant inside of it. Okay. So verse 5 says that Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, and this is, this is a really famous passage here, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And so before we even get to what he asks for, Hmm. that's an interesting statement where he says to God, like, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Solomon was like 40 (laughs) at this time. So obviously we're not talking about he's really a little child. Yeah, so he's somewhere in between the ages of 20 and 40, and most, I think most commentators would put him closer to 20. So he's not, definitely not a child. Okay. You know, he's a man. And so this language is the language of humility. Like there were ways of expressing humility, of calling yourself a little child, right, would be one of them. Or I'm small in, in my own eyes is, is another way that humility would be expressed. And so that's picked up in with, with Jesus talking you know when the kids come to him and they're you know the disciples are like hey should we should we shoo them away you know what does he say unless you know unless these are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or like little children and so when solomon is saying i'm i'm like i'm but a little child he understands that you know uh, what is what's what is a little child it's somebody who doesn't know how to do this (laughs) you know like (laughs) i need your help hey father father hello help i i'm in over my head like i can't do this on my own and there's a humility there i remember when when my son caleb was born 
having probably one of the most acute senses of this. I just remember him, you know, being delivered. The doctor wraps him up, hands him to to me, you know, after Laura. And I remember thinking, like, just being so overwhelmed, like, this is too big of a responsibility for me. Like, I can't do this. God, I need you. Please help me because I can't do this. <laughs> um, and Solomon, yeah. you know, has that same uh, – hold on a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little child. Like, I don't know how to do this. I need your help. Yeah. Um, which is – he should have kept that his whole life. <laughs> yes. He didn't, he didn't quite hang on to that. I do like, though, the I do not know how to go out or come in. I'm thinking that's about the best way I can think of to express <laughs> – <laughs> I don't have a clue. You know, I'm standing here in the doorway looking this way and that way, and I just don't know where to go from here. So it's a, it's a pretty good statement of yeah. humility. You know, one of the things that just – that would have been a very common – the De- Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which uh, still to this day, you know, that's one of the commandments of the Shema. The Shema is something that still to this day Jews recite. They put them in mezuzahs. Uh, they're on their doorposts, mm-hmm. the little boxes. But anyway, it's one of the most common – uh, passages of scripture recited still to this day by modern Jews, but in that, in the the Shema, you know, one of them is, you, you shall remind yourself of the Lord's word and statutes when you come in and when you go out. And so when Solomon says it like that, I think he's referencing back to that Shema, like, I'm still not good at this. I'm still not good at running my own home, and now you want me to run a nation? Um, I, I think that's probably right. So Solomon figures out what he's going to need to run that nation, and he says in verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? I would love to see those two verses used as the as – the, the, that, if that was the goal of every politician <laughs> – <laughs> Every politician, everywhere, forever, that would be great. <laughs> you, you, you mean it's not? No. No, I don't think it's so. Like, it's so absurd to even think about that being the desire of modern politicians yeah. anyway. So Solomon obviously asks for wisdom here. I mean, yeah. that is uh, – now, he says an understanding mind. Some mm-hmm. other translations use, use the word give your servant wisdom, um, mm-hmm. which is this, is this is the passage where it comes from. That word understanding, I was reading through a commentary earlier this morning, and the, the word behind that is, is hearing. And so it's, it's like, I want to hear. And the idea is, I want to hear from you, God. Like, uh, let me receive wisdom from what I hear, which is not, you know, Solomon is not constructing this in himself. That's not what he's asking for. He's not saying, you know, let me sit and let my brain just conjure up wisdom that's unique to me. He's like, I want to hear it from an outside source. That's where wisdom is going to come from. I want to have an understanding, a hearing heart. It's interesting. It, isn't the, I mean, isn't the word there actually Shema? Mm-hmm. Let me let me go back. What what verse is that? That's verse that's verse nine. It is Shema. You're it is right. Shema. So, so that's, now I have no doubt that's what he was getting absolutely. At earlier in that passage. Yeah, I mean that's the connection. And the Shema, folks, in case you're not familiar, I think everybody's heard the, the verse "Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord." Well, that's the that's part of the Shema. So that mm-hmm. starts off with "Here," and the next is "You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul." Right, So we know that as the greatest commandment, but then it gets in. Like, when do you think about the Lord? When you rise up and when you go to bed, when you come in, when you go out, when you put it on above your eyes and you put it on your hands. In other words, what you think, what you do. It's in the morning. It's at night. It's when you're coming into your house to run your home. It's when you're going out to run your business. And Mm -hmm. Solomon's like, I haven't even gotten that part figured out. (laughs) Now you want me to run a nation? So that's that's interesting. That's a good catch. He's making he's making that connection between that and the Shema, saying, Lord, I need this to be God. Make this real for me. This whole Mm -hmm. Shema thing. I want that to be the reality. That's cool. That's a good catch. And so then, after he asks for the uh, understanding mind, Sam, he also says that he wants to be able to discern. Um, between good and evil. So so why is that important to him as to be able to govern? Yes, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. In the beginning of 1 Kings, what we've already talked about in the last two weeks is Solomon has inherited a nation that is now divided. There's camps. There's people who are aligned. You know, some went to Adonijah's side. Some went to Saul's side during the reign of David. 
And so he's coming in, and he's trying to unite a kingdom into greatness, but he's got these factions, and he's looking at it going, I don't know how to fix this. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to bring justice and mercy and all these things into balance. And so he's begging God, like, this is bigger than me. I need your help. Um, and that that request to discern between good and evil, that harkens back to where? That's – that's all the all way, way back, back to Genesis. To That's Genesis the garden, three, yeah. 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 You know the knowledge of good and evil. Sure. Now, what Solomon is saying is, help me dis- discern what's good and what's evil. I mean, as I remember from my trees and fruits and things from Genesis three, <laughs> the you know the knowledge of good and evil, and then the tree of life, which would let them live forever. Those were the two things that would make them make men like God. Mm-hmm. So it's like the ability to know good from evil, that's something that that is God's to know, you know. It's mm-hmm. like and and so and he imparts that. So it's almost an an effect here. I think Solomon's saying that I you know, I it's not possible for a man to know enough about what's going on to make these decisions. I need your voice, your wisdom telling me the difference between the good and evil because I can't ever figure it out. And I think mm-hmm. that that's you know, again, if I can go back to what I would love to have all modern day politicians acknowledge is that they can't, they're not gonna be able to make wise choices just by listening to all the voices around them. You know, if you're not listening to God's voice, if that's, if that, if the wisdom that you're getting isn't from the Lord, then you're really, you're just going to get confused listening to all the people that are around you Mm because everybody's got their own opinion. And I can guarantee you that it's going to be favoring their own position. Always. 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 If you don't come with some sense of humility to be able to understand where other perspectives are coming from, you will always arrogantly and proudly assume that your position is the only righteous one and you will impose it on people and they will feel either ignored or dismissed or like there's injustice and that never creates lasting unity and health among a people. So – to reign, you need humility, and so this is where some this passage is going to go, I believe. Yeah. Well, and that would be <laughs> – if we could have a moment where we pause and say these would be good words for America, that would be good words for mm-hmm. America. So verse 10, um, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold – I now do according to your word. Behold, that's a lot of beholds. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Boy, that would be Mm -hmm. a great thing to hear God say to you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. That would be, can you imagine hearing that from God? Just for one second, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm getting chills reading that. I'm thinking, if God were to say to me, I am so pleased with you asking in humility for something that I know you need anyway, I'm going to do all these things for you. That would just mm-hmm. be, um, I imagine Solomon felt pretty good right there. Yeah. I, and he should have felt terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Because what Solomon has said is, I see myself as being so small, I can't do this on my own, I need you. And the Lord says, oh, that's the kind of steward you are, that you're going to lean on me, you're going to rely on me, you're going you're gonna to devote things to me. Well, then I'm going to bless your socks off. Here, here's wealth, here's all this thing. And now I want you, Solomon, to use it all for my glory, to reign in a way that distinguishes good and evil and lifts me up and lifts people up and loves them and shows justice and shows mercy. I'm going to give you all this stuff. And the tragedy is, is Solomon begins, like, you know, like we said, he's, oh my goodness, Lord, I can't do it without you. That's not the way he's going to stay. Yeah. And he's going to use all these blessings that the Lord pours out on him and slowly but surely he's going to start going, hey, I got this. Yeah. You know, it's my money and it's my this. And, you know, he'll do amazing things and he'll raise the kingdom of Israel to its greatest point, largest expansion, you know, envy of the world. But they have hearts that have turned away from the Lord 
which you know means it's just a matter of time before it all comes crashing down. Well, and I remember when you were doing your Truth on Earth class, which was your biblical archaeology class, that uh, you talked about Solomon as being one of the greatest builders and architects of the ancient mm-hmm. world. I mean, he's recognized as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they followed him in other places, you know. And one of the things that that's fascinating is Egypt. You, we have documentation in Egypt where they started following policies that we have in the scriptures that Solomon came up with. Like they came to him and they were like, oh, "You're really amazing. We want to model what we do after you." Um, and Solomon became really did uh, you know this the envy of the world and lots of stuff. And he built a ton of stuff um, in his days, cities. Yeah. So, uh, verse 15, uh, Solomon awoke, and behold, it was just a dream. Well, just, I, I've added the just. I'm now, bad as, I'm now as bad as these translators. I'm, I'm putting that in italicized. Let's back up. Verse 15, and Solomon awoke, and behold, another behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. The, the thing that was interesting to me here is that when Solomon woke up and had, you know, and it was a dream, okay, he didn't doubt that it was a word from the Lord. I mean, his, mm-hmm. his first thing to do after that was to go and, and make burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast and sacrifice. It's like he knew that God had communicated to him in that dream. Is mm-hmm. that something that you feel like God still does for people today? Does God still speak to us in our dreams and, and that way? Or, or was this like a like an Old Testament before we had the canon of Scripture kind of thing? <laughs> you know, he, he's never spoken to me in a dream where it's like, Sam, get up and go do this. Right, um, right. Nothing like that. I think – I think he can steer us in our dreams. I think our dreams can reveal stuff where you know where it draws to mind things that we're anxious about, or you know things like that. In the Middle East, there are lots and lots of testimonies, you know, where where it's you know punishable by death to share the gospel. There are people over there who are coming to faith in Christ through dreams, supernaturally so, saying that you know Jesus appears to them in their dreams, you know, explains the gospel, calls them. And they're coming to faith in large numbers through dreams. And you look at that, and it's like, oh, that's that's weird. What do you do with that as, pre- as Presbyterians, especially? Like, yeah. yeah, like this is this is really interesting. But absolutely, the Lord, I think, still does this to this day. I, I've never experienced the Lord talking to me in a dream, but I think in places where He wants to reach people who are not yet reached, absolutely, you know. He'll, he'll visit them in dreams, and I think that can happen here too. You know? I, I've always felt like, and maybe again, I'm, maybe I'm I'm projecting. I don't know, but I've always felt like the the church, the Western church, the church in America in particular, that you know, there's we don't have the urgent need for the mm-hmm. remarkably supernatural that I think happens in the in the church around the world, where there's mm-hmm. more of a missionary effort and people are are kind of on the front lines of the expanse of the church expansion of the church and the gospel. Mm-hmm. The stories that I hear from that I've heard missionaries tell over the years are just astonishing, yeah of where God has supernaturally done something in their mission field. Like, hey, you know, the, the the guy from the village told us to come in and pray, and if our God was real, that this fever was going to go away, and we didn't know what else to do, so we went and prayed, and man, boom, God healed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear stories like that, and I absolutely believe that the Lord works that way in those places in particular where mm-hmm. it is necessary to establish the gospel. I think less so among us, as I'm saying. I think we've got it kind of easy here. Yeah, one of the one of the documentaries that I watched, one of the fastest growing churches in the world is in Iran right now, where it's illegal to to share the gospel, which is interesting. And one of the couples that left Iran and was granted asylum in the United States for safety, Christian couple got here and the wife felt uncomfortable in America. I mean, you have safety and prosperity and all these things, but they missed, you know, what was going on in Iran where people were coming to faith by dreams. And she said to her husband, we need to go back. Like, we need to leave the safety of America and go back to Iran. And her words, which seared into my brain, um, her husband recounting this conversation was, you know, um, Satan is singing a lullaby over America. The church is asleep here. They don't expect God to do big things. Hmm. Um, and she wanted to get back to Iran where the Lord meant everything to those believers. 
So now we move into the latter half of chapter three, which is the, uh, the, the famous story of the baby and the two prostitutes and the sword. And, and I, I, used, I mentioned this to somebody the other day, and are you old enough? You're old. You should be old enough. You're almost my age, not quite my age. But do you remember when part of the American lexicon of idioms was this phrase, dividing the baby? Yeah, oh, to- absolutely. Sure. I used to hear all the time, well, you know, you know, it's dividing the baby kind of thing. That's where this came from, okay, folks? If you've ever heard the phrase dividing the baby, that comes from this story now about Solomon's wisdom. So verse 16, it says, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. That's interesting, third day. I didn't notice that before until I read it just now. It's none of those third day things. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had borne. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. So first test here of Solomon's, well, a first recorded test here of Solomon's wisdom. What do you do with this this story, Sam? Yeah, so they're jockeying back and forth. And by the way, in the Hebrew accounting of days, um, the evening comes before the morning. So like on the, 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 the Jewish Sabbath begins in the evening, right? They celebrate in the evening, uh, the beginning of Sabbath. And okay. so when it talks about the third day, when morning comes, it's actually still the morning of the third day because it's still a part of that same day. Okay. Um, and so on the morning of the third day, here's the, this issue of, of life and death. And so just to kind of sum up what the scripture is saying – Woman rolls over on top of her kid and kills the baby, snatches the baby from the other woman, wakes up and says, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Your baby is dead. Hey, look at mine. Mine's perfectly healthy. And the mother of the living one's like, you stole my baby. And so back and forth they go about whose baby this is, and ultimately they, they come before the king. Um, it says, thus they spoke before the king. And then Solomon is going to come back and render a verdict. Yeah, and he does that with the most in what I think is one of the most interesting ways. <laughs> it says, uh, verse twenty three. Then the king said, "The one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead.' And the other says, "No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one.'" And the king said, "Bring me a sword." So a sword was bought before the king, and the king said, "Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other." Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then I'm reading sarcasm. I'm reading into that one. But I kind of, I think that's justified. Mm -hmm. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. Mm -hmm. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Um. You know, so it's I just remarkable. Say, it's, it's pretty <laughs> remarkable. But we also, but we we talked about in the last chapter in our last podcast, we talked about this the curse of the sword not departing from David's house, and yet mm-hmm. here Solomon used the sword to reveal the truth, to mm-hmm. reveal wisdom. You know, and I. When I was doing the studying for this for doing the personal worship notes last week, you know, I really kind of dug into that a little bit and thought about the word of God as described as being sharper than any two edged mm-hmm. sword and able you know, so a sword is a cutting implement and yes, it is a it is a weapon and so it can it can be a harbinger of violence. But it also in this case, the sword was able to reveal what was true. Yep, and that's going to be the role of the sword all throughout the scriptures. When when the Lord breaks forth the sword the first time, happens in Genesis. If you remember in Genesis three, when they're escorted out of the garden, when Adam and Eve have sinned and betrayed the Lord, and essentially spat in his face and say, "We'd rather go it alone." 
um, the Lord takes them out of the Garden of Eden, clothes them, but he stations a cherubim angel with a sword. A flaming um, sword, isn't it? flaming sword. Yeah, and the, yeah. the idea is at this moment there is a, a separation between righteousness and guilty, and you're on the side of guilty, and you may not enter back into hmm. the presence of righteousness. Hmm. And so that sword, you'll see it throughout the scriptures, one of them being when David fell, Nathan says, the sword has come upon your house. In other words, your house is going to be plagued with this sword. And, you know, David tries to, you know, he names his kid Solomon, peace, hoping that, you know, maybe it won't fall upon him. And Solomon is going to hope that it doesn't fall on his kids. And it just continues to devour David's house. And by the way, it continues to devour David's house for generations until eventually Jerusalem falls, everybody's sent off into exile, and it seems like everything is for naught except the prophets keep talking. And they're saying, no, no, no. Even though it seems, you know, Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's been torn down, all the Jews and Israelites have been taken out into exile, it seems like all hope is lost, and the prophets start going, no, 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 there's a son of David. He's still coming. He's still coming. Mm -hmm. And then the question Hmm. becomes, well, how in the world do we get the curse of the sword off of the house of David? And then the king emerges, and this is Jesus, right? He is the great Messiah, the one that the prophets talked about, but... The sword, what's going to happen? And he becomes the first king who says, this curse of the sword, let it fall on me. Hmm. It's not going to be my children. It's not going to be my brothers and sisters. It's not going to be you know, me and you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, no, let that sword, rather than fall on them, let it fall on me. Hmm. And he devours the curse. He hmm. takes it upon himself so that that sword is no longer hanging above us. Hmm. Which is wonderful. You know, you think about Peter in the garden when they come to arrest him and Peter takes out a sword and he slices off Malchus's ear. You know, Jesus is like, hold on a minute. I, I know where this goes. If you fight, like, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Put it away. I'll take the sword is essentially what he's saying. I'll take the sword. I'll advance the kingdom by extinguishing this curse. Mm. It's really amazing. It's wonderful. What um, what do you think that Jesus was meant when he said in Matthew, "Don't don't assume that I've come to bring peace, but I bring a sword." What was he talking about there when he referred to the sword? Yeah. So the whole one of the things that this world, this life as we currently are walking through it, um, you know, this is the great opportunity for mercy. It's when mercy stands open for us to give our lives to Christ. But in a sense, the gospel comes and it creates this urgency. It divides, whether you, whether you like it or not. When you hear the gospel, when, when that comes to you, you make a decision. And what that does is it says, either I'm going to say no to you, and I'm, I'm going to stand over here in this camp where I'm saying, you know what, I'm good enough on my own, and God, you know, I earn heaven and I deserve it, or I don't care about God and I don't care what you do with me, but I'm not going to humble myself before you and receive your mercy as a gift. Hmm. So on one side of the gospel is a whole bunch of people who are either saying one way or another, I don't need Jesus. Now, those can be self-righteous people who are saying, I'm good enough on my own and I deserve it, or it can be people who say, I'm going to live however I want and I don't care what you do, God. I'm on my own. Those people are on one side of the gospel. On the other side are people who come and they're poor in spirit, as Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those those that come to the Lord and say, "I, I, I can't do it. Like, as much as I would want to try, there's something in me that's broken. I'm selfish. I can't seem to change. I can't seem to do the right thing all the time. I don't measure up to your standards, and I desperately need your forgiveness. I can't do it on my own. They have the heart that Solomon starts with. I can't mm-hmm. do this. It's too big of a task. And so I believe, Lord, like your word tells me that you sent your son into this world to do it on my behalf. He lives the perfect absolute righteous life that I never could, and he gives me that righteousness, and he takes my sin, and he goes to the cross, and he suffers the wrath of God that that sin deserves that God will not overlook, and he extinguishes the wrath of God for my sin out of utter love for me. And so, there's a dividing line that the gospel creates, Mm -hmm. and it's an eternal dividing line, 
and that sword comes down, and it's going to determine which side of that chasm your heart is upon. Now, there will be peace afterward, but Jesus came into this world to preach a message that requires you to choose. You can't sit on the fence or the sword cuts you <laughs> down one side or the other. Right. It requires one of two sides. And so when Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, he's not saying, you know, I'm leading a militant charge. He's saying, I'm going to reveal hearts. You remember Solomon who called for the sword and it revealed the heart of the true mother? I'm coming to reveal where your true affections lie. Yeah. Does well, your life belong to the Lord or are you walking around in rebellion saying that everything is yours? Yeah. Well, Jesus, and Jesus certainly said enough in other places to understand that he was not coming to bring a militant charge. You know, he, he, he told uh, Peter, you know, put away your sword. You know, the, the interesting thing is that if, when, when the fence that you're trying to straddle is a sword, it's hard to, it's hard to <laughs> straddle that fence. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty uncomfortable. You really want to land on one side or the other. So that, That's an uncomfortable wedgie. Yeah. Is there anything else that we want to cover here as part of Chapter 3? Yeah, you know, the, this this whole thing is an absurd story. Like with with modern sensibilities, we look at it and say, you know, wait, hold on a minute. One of the one of these moms was okay with her child getting killed. Like, what is that? That doesn't happen today. Like, who would ever do that? And what we have to understand is this is three thousand years ago, and they're living in a place where child sacrifice is happening in cultures all around them. So the idea of a child sacrifice would have been hard. It was a sacrifice after all, but it wouldn't have been shocking like we hear it today. And so when you have these women who come forth, I want you to understand that the penalty for kidnapping in the ancient world was death. And the penalty for lying about kidnapping was death. And so when this woman says, no, 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 it's, it's hers, what she's admitting to is I was trying actively to deceive the king so that I could kidnap someone else's child. In other words, I deserve death under the law. And so she's saying, I will lay down my life for the sake of letting that child live. It's very gospel-oriented. Hmm. And That's so what, what, what happens? We hear that and we go, how in the world? Like, what, how hard would it be to give your child over, you know, to somebody else, right? And, and take that pain upon yourself, the death penalty, essentially. And we think, how could you do that? And, and behind that, with the gospel, there's something that's even more incredible about this equation because what is, what is the equation that God is looking at, you know? And, and think about this. All throughout the Bible, you know what we're called? You know, prostitutes. The church is likened to a prostitute. The people of God, Israel, is likened again and again to a prostitute. Why is that? It's not talking about sexual acts. What it's talking about is you go out and you give your heart to anything that might satisfy you or give you some little payment for just a moment. And you have the God of the universe who's like, hey, my love is, is right here. It's in abundance. It's yours. And yet you go and you sell yourself to everything and anything for just a moment's pleasure. And so the scripture likens Israel and its disobedience to a prostitute. And so what is, what is the equation of the gospel? Well, here you have the king. Remember, we're already blown away that God would, the king, Solomon, would give an audience to prostitutes. But what does the gospel say? Get this. Now it's the king who is so loving of these prostitutes. That's you and me. People that are wicked and defiled and wayward and unfaithful. And what does he do? He says, in order to get the prostitutes to, and to adopt them as my sons and daughters, I will sacrifice my son. Mm. Now, we read this story and we go, I can't imagine a mom being willing to give up her son. Like, I just can't do it. But then we have to stop and think, God so loves us, prostitutes, that he and his son from eternity past have entered into this covenant, eternal covenant arrangement, where the father is going to give his son to win prostitutes to himself forever, mm. making them into pure, righteous sons and daughters, forever and ever and ever. And when we read this story, like how much greater wisdom is in our eternal king, mm. so much better than Solomon. Hmm. And he does so because the sword fell on him. 
I think we'll let that stand as our last word on First Kings chapter 3. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it has been profitable for you. I hope you're enjoying following along with this message series on the Desiring the Kingdom. I uh, do encourage you to pick those up uh, at our website at reavistachurch.com. Uh, you can get all of the messages that are in this series. We're just three weeks into it, so it's a good time to, to get caught up and, and join in with us. And then you follow along each week uh, here in the podcast. One production note that I did want to share with everybody, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, um, it won't happen this week. So this week, I think, will still be out on Thursday, but we're changing our release date from Thursday to Friday. Um, if you're somebody that's used to picking up your, your new episode of Out of Water on Thursdays, look for it on Fridays instead, probably starting next week. Uh, we're just kind of doing that to accommodate my schedule as editor a little better. It lets me um, gives me a little bit more time between the time that we record and the time that we release so that I have an opportunity. It's not that the editing is difficult because Sam and I never make mistakes ever when we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing that ever needs to be cut out in any way. Um, but uh, I do have a lot of other things I do around the church. And so sometimes <laughs> it's just a little tough to get that block of time that I need to edit always consistently uh, on Wednesday. We typically record on Tuesdays. I edit Wednesdays. We release Thursdays. So we're just going to push that by one day and uh, release episodes of Out of Water uh, starting on Fridays. So if you are, if you do, if you look forward, I know, I know there are some people that every Thursday morning, and I know that because if it's not there, I get a text. <laughs> Where's the podcast? So I uh, just want to let you guys know that there are fans that pick it up as soon as it's out uh, that we're going to start releasing those on Friday. If you'd like to correspond with us, if, you just, if you're a Thursday-ologist or a Thursday-ite or a Thursday-tarian, and you're like, no, please, keep it on Thursday, <laughs> uh, you can send us an email. That's outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify, or in the media section on our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. We'll be back next week with 1 Kings chapter 4 and 5, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.